Welcome to episode one of The Exam Room. I'm your host, Brian Vardabedian. In this episode, my guest is Dr. Sasha Shilkut from the University of Nebraska, and we drill down on burnout and resilience in physicians. It was interesting because as someone who was raised in a generation where we just didn't talk about this stuff, it was really great to uh, drill down and hear what some of the current thinking is on burnout and resilience. Dr. Shilkut's personal story of burnout and how she conquered it is really inspiring. I love how this conversation went, and I hope you enjoy it as well. It is kind of funny. I somehow along the way failed to let Dr. Shilkut know that this was my first recording for the exam room. Hopefully her surprise meant that it all went pretty well. If you're here for the first time, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes. More importantly, I hope you'll pass this along to a medical professional or anyone who you know who is showing signs of burnout. We really need to keep this conversation going. I hope you enjoy the episode. For most consumers, the search for a healthcare provider is a frustrating maze of bewildering choices and unanswered questions. And they really want to hear what other patients have to say in order to make a decision with confidence. With Loyal's Empower Solution, you have the tools to do just that. Empower your patients, the patient, and provide a solution. Maximizing star ratings while introducing deeper insights into what patients really are saying about their experience. You could sort, approve, and publish patient reviews of physicians, services, and even practices using some of the intelligent features like auto-approval and syntax highlighting. To learn more, visit them online at loyalhealth.com. Welcome to the exam room. Uh, I'm your host, Brian Vardabedian. We're talking today burnout and resilience. Uh, a 2017 Medscape survey of 14,000 physicians identified bureaucratic tasks, work hours, and increased computerization of medicine as forces that are driving burnout. Burnout negatively impacts patient satisfaction and care quality and leads to higher rates of medical error, physician turnover, and substance abuse. Despite rising numbers of physicians experiencing signs of burns out, the subject remains uh, somewhat taboo. So to help sort this issue out, I'm thrilled to welcome to the exam room Dr. Sa- Sasha Shilkut. She is an associate professor of anesthesiology and vice chair of strategy and innovation at the University of Nebraska. She's the founder of Brave Enough and a powerful voice for burnout and resilience in physicians. Welcome, Dr. Shilkut. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to chit-chat with you today about this um, important topic. So, you know, it's interesting. I trained in the early 1990s when there was really little to no attention paid to the emotional experience of physicians. Um, When we were having a hard time back then, we were whining and and we kind of had to get tough. And uh, now over the past few years, the terms burnout and resilience have really kind of crept into our lexicon. So, what led to this moment? What happened between when I was training and right now? I think that uh, there are several things um, that I know in my career, I can look back even in the last you know 15 years of medicine and, and notice a change in work compression. If I had to pick three things for myself and what I see in the microculture of the operating room and in anesthesia and surgery, I could tell you that um, there are probably three or four different factors that that are attributing to the high percentage of burnout. Um, one is our patients are living longer. 
and they are living longer with more complex diseases. You know, it used to be 15 years ago, if we couldn't get someone off bypass, um, that was the end. And while that was difficult, there wasn't this kind of connection to this kind of, you know, have we done the next thing? Have we put in a mechanical device? Have we put this patient on ECMO? And now we're seeing patients that are have extremely complex disease and, you know, they're maybe living for either months to years on our service. And it's more, it's, you know, you're more emotionally invested in those patients. So that's the first thing. The other thing is that we are so accessible. Um, You know, none of us had cell phones and we're texting um, at the level that we are now. And now if, you know, someone sends you an email and you don't answer, uh, they know how to find you. <laughs> they know how to text right. you. They know how to track you down very easily. You know, I remember putting my pager in my locker and going home after 24 hours um, and feeling like, okay, I'm going home. I just worked 24 hours in the operating room. I left my pager in my locker because I don't have any responsibilities. But now I go home after 24 hours and I have my cell phone. And so if somebody needs to text me about what I gave in the middle of the night, or if somebody wants to know if I'm going to come to this meeting, or if somebody has a consult for me, um, they can get me. And and so um, definitely, you know, with technology and with the complexity of what we can do now, I think all of those things and our, we are so accessible 24-7 to not only our patients, but our colleagues and our trainees. And then we also have this emotional connection with patients who are living longer and more complex. And the, obviously the electronic medical record, although I don't like to use that as an excuse for burnout, um, because I think that, you know, that that's kind of a victim mode, a mentality. All of those things kind of come together and culminate in a level of where we are now. Yeah, exactly. That's really interesting, this issue of accessibility, because I hadn't thought of that. Wes Fisher, who's a cardiologist in um, Chicago, had written a few years back about this issue of time creep, which is as social media first came in and as cell phones, as you suggested, came in, our accessibility increased and there are very few ways to escape, as you suggested. We talk about burnout, but what exactly is burnout and how do we define it? Well, you know, there's kind of a triad of burnout that is really accepted in the literature of having, um, being emotionally completely depleted, um, being cynical, and um, being um, disengaged and um, or inefficient. And it's interesting because women tend to uh, become emotionally depleted first, and men tend to, physicians, male physicians we know, tend to experience cynicism first. So Uh um, we kind of express it in different ways. But um, what I always tell people is that for, for me, I've done a lot of research into burnout, and I have recognized, I can recognize it now in people. And the main difference between stress and burnout is engagement and overactivity. And I like to use a heart as an example. So a stressed heart or a stressed out physician is typically hyper-engaged and overcommitted. They're like, they're the EF of 75%, right? They're the low Mm -hmm. FDR state. They're like running around, doing a million things, juggling a million balls, and they're stressed and they're under stress. Burnt, the burned out physician is disengaged. Okay. Their EFs like 20%. <laughs> They're, okay. They just don't care. They have, and they start withdrawing first from people, for, first from projects and paper, which is fine. We all need to do that sometimes. But then mm-hmm. they start withdrawing from people. And so when you look around and you see um, 
a physician that you noticed has been stressed for a while, but now they just are totally disengaged. They don't want to, you know, they don't want to chit chat at the coffee um, cart. They don't even want to give eye contact when they're walking down the hall to someone because, I mean, how many times have we been walking down the hall? We see someone we know in the, in the hospital and we think, oh my gosh, I have to smile at that person. <laughs> you <know>? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That may be a sign of burnout. Um, right. So they just start disengaging and they lose, um, they just lose their joy of medicine. They really don't, they're showing up to work, but they're not really present. So how do we know that this is really, I guess, if you look at the stats, this is really on the rise. Is that correct? Um, yes. I mean, it's uh, in the, it, I think the last Medscape survey for all specialties was 52% of all specialties. Now, some are higher. Is it possible that this is really an issue of just awareness and identification of, of burnout? Or do you think it's, I mean, judging from the way you describe things, you really think this truly is on the rise. It's not an issue of identification and awareness, right? Well, yeah, I think I think probably it's a little bit of both, but I think that, you know, I can tell you that um, when I walked into the hospital 15 years ago and I was going to have a day in the OR, I would go to the locker room, pull down some scrubs, pull them off or put them on, walk to the OR, walk to the pharmacy, and someone, a human being, handed me a tray of drugs and said, God be with you <laughs> on your day, right? <laughs> right. Now it takes me, I, I actually looked the other day, it takes me about 37 badge swipes, finger clicks, um, uh, uh, finger like print analysis, um, codes and passwords, 37 to get to pre-op. I, I mean, it. and so what we're focused on now is actually the documentation of medicine and the algorithm to get from A to B, just to get scrubs and just to get your drugs and to get and to make sure you've labeled everything and all of that. And what you're thinking about is, you know, you got to get to the OR by 730. You're not thinking about Mr. Jones, who's, you know, I used to be, I was like, okay, Mr. Jones has an EF of 25%. How am I going to induce him? What lines am I going to put in? Now it's, oh my gosh, did I get the antibiotic? Did I? So you're focusing on process, right? Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, the patients haven't changed, um, but we've cha how we approach our day, I think, and our mental processes have changed. So, you know, on 33 charts, I've described this issue of the redefinition of the physician, which is, um, you know, people talk about doctors being replaced and so on and so forth. I like to think of us being redefined. And, um you look at just the changes that are happening, it's almost like we're under siege. The AMA reports that there are now more physicians owned by hospitals and own their own practices. Um, a lot of what we used to do with our eyes and our ears and our hands has been outsourced to technology. And we have empowered patients who are telling physicians really that they can do a lot of, a lot of stuff on their own. Uh, we have this issue of looming artificial intelligence and machine learning maybe replacing what we do. And finally, Physicians are really not physicians anymore, but they're providers, right? Mm -hmm. um, is, I mean, is this just a response to all the changes that are underway, or do you think we've really, it's really about these processes that we've added? Well, I think that it definitely is about some of the, all of these processes that we've added. I also think that um, part of the problem, and I, I see this all the time, is we know that when physicians are not in leadership positions in these institutions or organizations, um, it, we suffer, but yet physicians are often the first people to, um, 
either not want to be in those positions, right? Like we just mm-hmm. we don't, or we don't want to support our colleagues to be in those positions because it's costly. So, and so, Sasha, when you say lead, leadership positions, you mean uh, in positions where we're advocating for the appropriate processes or correct. trying or to control the feasibility what's happening, right? and the, you know, the feasibility of the processes. Okay. Um, you know, like, uh, is this, we just, for example, rolled out a new um, way that we're going to document blood products. And the process was not feasible. <laughs> it, it, I mean, people would die if we did the process that was initially proposed. And clearly, Nobody that really gave the blood products, i.e. physicians, in a traumatic or quick way was present to help develop the process. So right. obviously it was recognized and it was fixed, and but it took us saying, okay, we need a physician and we're going to support a physician to get out of the operating room, to go to all these and to fix the process, which is expensive because our time mm-hmm. is so much more expensive than a, an administrative's time, right? So I think that we have allowed all of these processes to kind of be our focus. I mean, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's amazing to me, but, but yet we are part of the answer. And we have to we have to actually support the, the physicians to be part of the process making and the policy making because we can't just complain about the change if right. we're not willing to be a part of it. Right. I always like to say that physicians have agency; that we truly do have a larger voice, and we like to give ourselves credit. I see this complacency among physicians around me, where these dictums come down, as you suggested, and we just say, "Oh, that's just the way it is." When right. in fact. We need to be playing a larger role in creating the spaces and the processes around us, right? Yeah, exactly. This role of technology you touched on, uh, you know, common target, of course, is the EHR. Um, and I have an interesting view on this because I, I do believe that EHRs have a long way to go with respect to interface design. But I, I do think it's very interesting when I look at the 120 young residents we have at Texas Children's Hospital and Baylor College of Medicine, I rarely see the millennial doctors complaining about Epic. So it seems to be, I mean, it's something I've observed that seems to be people of my age and older who seem to have a hard time adapting to the integration of the EHR with workflow, whereas the younger physicians, they just seem so facile. So is this really an issue of technology or is this an issue of part of this change that I was talking about? I, I don't think it's an, a technology issue as much as, I mean, you know, I can tell you as an anesthesiologist, I love that it, it records all of the vitals and it does all of these things that I used to have to do by hand. Um, I think that the focus of the technology is is something that we need to recognize, you know, <laughs> I used to have an attending who would always say, you know, I'd call and say, oh my gosh, the monitor is not working. And he would say, well, you're the monitor of the monitor, Sasha. <laughs> and I thought, and it's, very <laughs> true. it's very true. And I right. think that we are the, we are the monitors of the EHR. And so, um, again, we have to kind of take ownership of it. And one of the things I find interesting is we ha- we tend to focus on the red flags in our inbox and all the things that mm-hmm. we need to do, This ta- these tasks. But one of the things that I think is missing is like, you know, how great would it feel to sit down and say and feel like, oh, yesterday you took care of a patient that was like an ASA, you know, 10 and and they made it through alive and you did all of these things and, you know, good job. <laughs> like how awesome, mm-hmm. would it be to, you know, like 
to have some, like even our quality metrics, we aren't really utilizing the EHR to um, promote the positive care that we're doing or to measure, in my opinion, the, and what could, what could motivate physicians and what could actually um, give physicians joy um, in the EHR. I think it's there. I think we haven't figured that out right. I mean, every day we sit down and we get this kind of negative feedback and this, these lists, like, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I could get someone through like a 16 hour transplant. And the only thing the EHR tells me is I forgot to document the antibiotic. Right. And right. so like there's, you've done all these other things that right, have been phenomenal, right. but you don't get any acknowledgement. Yeah. yeah. And so I honestly think that we, we, there's, there's, there could be joy found. I know this sounds like blasphemous, but actually in the EHR, like if you sat mm-hmm. down and, and it said, Brian, this is how many kids you take, took care of this month. And this is how many good outcomes you had. And this is how, how many, you know, patients you helped this week. I mean, wouldn't that be like a phenomenal thing to get that on your portfolio? Like at, yeah. at least a little boost, you know? Yeah, that would be amazing. And I think there's very little attention paid to wellness or the regard for what we go through, what we experience on a day-to-day basis. I think when we look at other healthcare professionals, there's a lot of attention paid to talent retention with nurses and so on. And when it comes to it comes to providers, I think there, there may be something of a double standard. And so, yeah, it's very, very interesting. I think, you know, I've always suggested with the EHR that um, it's really kind of the stuff behind the EHR. And if we really took all the best designers at Amazon and Apple and Google and designed the very best EHR in the world, I think doctors would still be unsatisfied because I think it's, again, it's this process of documentation and what's mandated for coding and compliance that really kind of gets us in trouble rather than the interface design. Right. I agree. Other generational differences, I've I've mentioned this contrast between millennials and doctors of my age. I mean, do do we see burnout in I mean, obviously in, in residency, right? I mean, is, is there other generational differences? I I think there are generational differences. Um, I, we definitely see burnout in trainees. Um, you, There's been studies that have shown that um, even you, if you follow medical students from year one to year four, traditionally the, that they're at their lowest um, enthusiasm for medicine their first day of residency. Isn't that interesting? So we kind of, we take it out of them. And there's been some, you know, talk, well, shouldn't we recruit more resilient medical students? Well, I don't think you can say that because if you look at the studies that have been done, um, there's something about medicine that is burning out our brightest and best. And it's, if you, the more, the higher you are as an achiever, the higher you're likely to burn out. So isn't that interesting? Um, And I think that it's, I think we honestly have to recognize that um, it's a serious issue and that we have to devote some resources and leadership to fixing it. Because, you know, if if you're a woman physician and you're age matched um, with other women in society who are similar age and similar health as you, you're 2.3 times higher likely to to commit suicide if you're a woman physician. And you're 1.6 times higher if you're a male physician. And if you told, you know, if somebody came out and said, oh my God, my gosh, you know, women physicians are 2.3 times higher likely to like contract or get lymphoma, develop lymphoma in their lifetime. I'm fairly certain we would be all over some Mm -hmm. task force, you know, research, we'd be devoting money to figuring this out. Um, 
So it's a real problem. And I, we can say, well, it's just a generation thing or, oh, it's, we can blame the EHR, but the bottom line is it's, it's real and it's here and we need to address it. That transition that young doctors go through where they develop this level of cynicism. I mean, we've, we've seen this for, for a while and I've always wondered where that came from. And I've always wondered whether that's a learned behavior or whether they're truly, they're truly emotionally depleted, as you suggested at the beginning of the cast. And um, I, I can't help but think that there's modeling that happens with senior residents and, and, and such. You think that's the case? I definitely think that's the case. I think that, you know, joy begets joy and sadness begets sadness. And if you're, right. you know, I can look back to my own career and think of um, some really good supervising, you know, residents and fellows that I loved being on service with. And even if we were up all night admitting patients, it's, we had fun, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so how much did, did those mentors and those, that kind of modeling um, affect my mindset? It did, totally did. And so, you know, it's funny because we, you know, even the, the residents that will call me the night before will say, you know, we have a 56 year old male with congenital heart disease tomorrow. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, what's his name? That patient has a name, you know, <laughs> like he's not a 26 year old male. He has, he has a name. He has a young child. You know, he's, he's a person, he has a mom and he has a dad. We're going to figure out how to take care of whatever his, you know, name is. And so I think, I think I, I actually now can see the erosion in even our trainees as they go through year after year of the depersonalization of patients mm-hmm. and I have to kind of like throw a red flag and be like, okay, wait, we're going to step back today. We're going to try to find joy today and we're going to enjoy this. We're going to feel like we're privileged to take care of these people. How can we do that? Speaking of solutions and you're, you're talking about finding joy, um, you know, it's, I, I look around me and I see um, a lot of doctors around me and some do a really good job at balancing their life. It's like they, they seem to have a natural built-in capacity for balance and equanimity. And then I see other people in my world who they can't say no, they burn themselves to the nub. I mean, what role do individuals have in preventing this as opposed to institutional or systematic approaches? I think both institution and individual factors are equally important. So, you know, to say it's just the physicians, they need a tough enough, that's not the, you're not going to get anywhere if you don't change the culture. Um, But you also have to recognize that physicians themselves have a duty to themselves to set um, some standards for their own prioritization of health. And we know that, you know, physicians who are resilient, so they've, they've done studies in surgeons and family practice docs and psychiatrists, and they've looked at compared physicians in the group um, that were in similar microcultures. So they worked in similar community or clinics or hospitals. And those who were, who, you know, had high resiliency and high resilience and those who had uh, burnout. And they reckon that their three common factors were, you know, number one, there was always the physicians who are resilient had some realistic expectation of failure day to day. So they, so they had a margin of failure. They were basically not perfectionists. They were okay having a B day <laughs> or doing a mm-hmm. B job sometimes, right. right? Like, or they just were like, today it's going to suck because I'm going to have three extra 34 patients to see in clinic, but I'm going to get through it. 
They also had social support and some time to themselves that they made themselves a priority. And so this whole thing of saying yes to everything is, you know, it, it's it's bananas. And we do this and we like we put a coat of armor on like we actually celebrate you know, being martyrs in medicine. It's mm-hmm. bizarre. It's like Superman <laughs> complex, right? Yeah. And, and then the third thing that, um, they had was it, they actually experienced the same amount of, of stress, but they were able to bounce back, um, after failure because they had a social support. So they actually had colleagues at work. And this is so key that they could, decompress with or talk with or joke with um, more than just like a walk in the passing someone in the hall and like, oh my gosh, I have to smile at this person. I don't even have the energy to smile at this person. So I think we underscore the value of work colleagues and the social support that we have. So those were the three main factors that those physicians, you know, had. And those are individual factors, right? Like the institution can't make you be social with your colleague or have some social support. They can't make you go do whatever it is you like to do for enjoyment. Um, they they can't make you change your mindset. That's up to you. So, so taking it to the higher level, um, obviously we have to go beyond giving people yoga mats and granola. <laughs> yes. um, <laughs> but we're just that layer, easy. I mean, we'd all be doing it, right? <laughs> right. If we just reading about this in preparation for this podcast, it's this is such an endemic and deeply ingrained problem on so many levels. Where does an institution begin? Obviously, we can try to handle ourselves at an individual level, as we discussed, but what should institutions do? And is there anyone who's doing this really well? There are a, several different places that are that are ahead of a, a lot of most institutions that have figured this out. Um, Mayo Clinic really invested mm-hmm. probably a decade worth of work into this after they had some pretty low engagement survey data back from their entire, you know, all their community hospitals and their entire organization. And they they really did a lot of research and they did some um, interventions and some studies into simple things like building common space for physicians. So mm-hmm. putting physician workrooms on each floor that not just physicians, but other people could come in and talk to them and they could actually like to have discussions and meaningful, meaningful, um, social interactions. Um, you know, in, in, in cr- changing the way that they incentivize physicians. So physicians, we, we are really bad at saying no. And when people incentivize us with money, we just keep adding. Well, you know, even if we're burned out and I see this all the time, we'll, we'll just say like, oh, we can take that extra call if you're going to pay us. Oh, even, and it's the people who are burned out that often are like, oh yeah, give me more money. I'll do that more work. (laughs) I'll be happier. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so they changed the way they even incentivized physicians, um, and gave more time and, and they really looked at like, you know, vacation, who was the ability to take vacation, the ability to get vacation. They, they looked at a lot of different things doing a mindfulness breath um, and then making it easier for physicians to be able to exercise and get to um, get to the gym. So the, you know, making gyms more accessible, making, making it okay in the middle of your day to go to the gym. Um, You know, like I know physicians who do that and I know physicians that think that those people are crazy that they do that. So we have to really change the culture. 
Hey everybody, this is Reed Smith. And this is Chris Boyer. And we are co-hosts on a show called Touchpoint, which is a podcast that's dedicated to the discussions on digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, not only for just hospitals, but health systems and physician practices. In every episode, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on digital tools, solutions, strategies, and other things that are impacting the healthcare industry today. And while you listen to this show, we would certainly love you to check out ours. All you have to do is swing on over to touchpoint.health for more information, and also some of the other shows that are featured on the Touchpoint Media Network. You know, for me, when I look at within my own institution, um, in my own personal circumstances, I'm a full-time clinician and clinical work can just be, even at its best is just, it can be brutal work. And my, my greatest changes have, you know, have really come by watching my peers, the ones who do appear to have this balance and trying to mimic and model after what they do so that I can kind of do the same thing. And to me, that's been the most powerful thing. And um, I don't know how you change that within an organization. How do you you know, but uh, I think this whole thing is a, it's a, creates some real challenges for organizations because if we look at the demand for, or the shortage of physicians that's anticipated to come in the next 20 years, this can only get worse, right? Right. And, and um, I think one of the studies that came out that I thought was really interesting was it basically showed, um, and it, it wasn't specific to medicine, it was in business um, and looking at burnout in, in, high level, you know, fortune 500 companies and executives. And it showed that even if you like every, every person has a passion and even if you let that person, if that person's strengths or their passion are aligned for 0.2 FTE, so 20% of their job, they will not burn out. So even, Mm -hmm. even if you give people basically what the study showed, 20% of their full-time commitment doing whatever it is that they, is their jam, like they love right? So mm-hmm. they're happy doing 80% of the work that they, that really isn't their number one. If you get, let them do that 20% of the time. And I find that, um, I don't know a lot of physicians that like love documentation. <laughs> no. <laughs> right. um, so, but I know a lot of physicians that, you know, would love to teach one day, or they love to develop, uh, you know, an IT product, or they are really good at building programs, or they love, you know, scoping all day, or whatever it is. And so, mm-hmm. I think that we, you know, we, we, it, I serve on our recruitment committee, and I just always kind of chuckle to myself when I this dichotomy because we, we always want to recruit really, you know, interesting people who have a lot of like interesting passion and 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 interests and in things. And then we kind of, you know, put everybody in the same mode of work. Like, this is what, mm-hmm. and we kind of homogenize everyone and kill the their innovation and kill their their passion and their strength and their spirit. And so, I think we have to get really creative if, as physician leaders to think how can we, you know, give someone eighty percent of the the stuff that we have to get done, but twenty percent of their passion and. And I think that is the key to finding joy and sustaining joy in medicine. And I think, you know, early on with uh, in academics and in postgraduate training, we really do put individuals into this bucket of going into a basic science lab when there are actually some people who have a passion for other things. And I think we do a very poor job of helping people find those angles that truly give them joy, right? Right. Right. Yep, exactly. So, 
Are there any elements, you know, medicine is hard. Being a CV anesthesiologist requires a brutal amount of training. Are there elements of training that we need to defend or keep that are really emotionally trying or difficult? In other words, are we going to overshoot here? Could we train physicians who are too soft? Does that make sense? Um, that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't think that that is uh, something we should fear. <laughs> I think, right. um, I, I can tell it you. It sounds very dated. You know, it sounds like very old fashioned. Yeah. Like, I don't think that that is, I, I, I think that that is not at all what we should be worried about. I think that what we should be worried about is losing physicians who care because there are a lot of, um, I gave a talk to my own department actually last year on, Mm -hmm. and I shared a story of a really bad outcome that happened to me that it took me years to kind of overcome. And um, I was blown away at the people that I worked with every day who, um, and just this past weekend, I shared the story at a a conference. And there were about 10 people waiting to talk to me, all with tears um, in their Mm -hmm. eyes. And you know, I was blown away in my own department, the people who made, you know, appointments or who came to talk to me privately and said, you know, I had this happen to me five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago. I've never, I've never gotten over it. I've never, I've carried it with me. Um, so most of us are really good at hiding those things and, and carrying those, that burden and that guilt. Um, I don't know of a physician that I would look at and say, oh, that person's too soft. Most of the time people carry things and develop, sadly, um, substance abuse or bad, you know, anxiety or have broken relationships or whatever, because they're actually hiding something that they probably would feel be good to, you know, get out or talk to someone. But that's not really accepted in medicine, right? We're, we're supposed to like lose somebody and then the next minute, the next patient's waiting for us. Um, so I think we actually, I, I don't see that us creating, you know, soft physicians, it has a negative undertone or some is going to have some negative prediction. A couple of things you mentioned, and I'm, I feel really bad that I mentioned this so late, but when you say re- resilience, a doctor's resilient, what is a resilient doctor? So a resilient physician is someone who expects to fail forward. So they, they expect some margin of failure in their career, um, or a bad outcome, or um, a bad day, (laughs) or an overpacked schedule, whatever it is, but they expect to bounce up. So it's not that resilient physicians have this kind of, you know, Pollyanna attitude and everything is sparkles and rainbows and unicorns. That's not it. It's that they are able to fail or struggle and bounce up. So that's the key to resiliency. It's it's not like nothing bad ever happens to me. I don't talk about it. Um, they can process it and they can move forward. And they have the capacity to to kind of adjust to things when they don't go their way, right? Right. And they also have the capacity, as we've I've said before, to say no and to say, you know, I'm starting to burn out. I need to back off and have a self-care two or three days off. I need to get away from this place and check out and turn off my phone. I need to unplug. Um, those are resilient physicians who can self-monitor that and who know when they are have are starting to become cynical and recharge. Like self-awareness. Mm-hmm. So how did you, this is fascinating, how did you get into this? What led you as an academic CV anesthesiologist to begin thinking about this and raising awareness about it? 
Um, well, about four years ago, it's an interesting story, probably not unlike other people. I had I was kind of at this pinnacle of my academic career, and I was having a lot of success on paper. And um, I came to uh, the conclusion one evening that I was wanted to quit medicine. And I thought, why am I having these feelings of wanting to throw away years of of um, studying, <laughs> nights spent at the library, and mm-hmm. hours of training and shifts and money that I've invested, and all of that is is not worth it to me at this very moment. What is going on? And um, I was incredibly successful on paper, but I was totally empty inside. And I recognized that I had to change myself. And so I um, underwent about a year of really um, getting what I call my outlist year. I started, you know, I knew it was going to take me about a year to kind of get out of a lot of commitments and finish some things and say no. And then I also gave myself an hour a day, which is really difficult when you have four kids and you work full time, mm-hmm. but I figured right. my hour. And I recognized that I was extremely lonely. Um, I did not have work friends, colleagues that I connected with on a routine basis. So I very simply reached out to nine women that I knew that were doctors and said, hey, do you want to you want to be my friend? Do you want to be in a text group with me? Right. And then it led to a Facebook group that now has about 7,000 women in it. And then it led to me creating this Brave Enough blog. And then I, I, I got really brave enough in my own life to um, recognize that maybe if I'm feeling this way, other physicians are feeling this way, and maybe I can help them. Um, and so uh, I started researching burnout and researching resiliency and resilience and what it meant to be resilient. And I just kind of did my own self-study on it and then started implementing some of those modalities in the group that I was leading. So Brave Enough, is, is, it, a, is it, a, it's, it's a movement or uh, would you call it a movement? Or a, I would say it's a, it's a meeting. Or is it? it is. It's a movement. I mean, most of the people who are involved are um, women physicians, women pharmacists, women nurses, but it's actually a lot of other professions. I have friends that are um, followers that are lawyers, and and um, I love that I'm, I have a lot of male followers, too. I think about 35% of the people who follow me are male, which really means a lot to me because, um, you know, the message is not just for women. Uh, and so I... I think I'm on to something. Um, I think it's not like a Sasha Shulcut thing. I think it's just we're kind of all in this community together. And it's really interesting to see other people encouraging other people and having a common, like just feeling normal. Like, oh, there's other people that feel this way. This is actually normal. I'm not abnormal. Um, there's there's actually have resiliency in that alone. So that's kind of where I got to the point where I am. So how is, I guess, how do you use public media like Facebook? It sounds like this all began through a nidus of community on Facebook and then you evolved, it sounds like, to fit a need with a, with a meeting and such. How do you use public media and how do you see public media playing a role in getting word out on burnout and resilience? Well, I think it allows people to be vulnerable Um, And it allows, because there's kind of a safety if you're in a group of people that you can share, that you may not feel comfortable sharing, you know, in the OR, but you may feel, um, you may be able to connect with someone when it's convenient Mm -hmm. for you in a group, right? So that's one thing. So like, I can't go have coffee every day with a group of women, but I can get on Facebook and connect with women at 
10 o'clock at night when it's feasible. Um, mm. So that's one thing. And then, you know, I find it interesting. People say to me all the time, like, how are you on social media? Because it's so negative. And I just laugh because I think it's negative because you obviously are allowing it to be negative. Like it's, it's no different right. than how you choose your friends, right? Like you choose yeah. your feed, you choose your follower, like you, you can block people, you, you choose what you see every day. And so I just, I find it to be very positive. I, I'm, I actually get so much encouragement out of the, the community. Um, so it's very, um, it's a, it's a very uplifting and positive message for me. And I think it's so important for our patients to see that we're human, right? Right, like, right, right, right. You know, that's what I've had so many patients say to me, like, you know, you're a real person. And I think, yes, every doctor is a real person. Uh, right. That's one of the, po that's the real power, I think, of public engagement. Uh, you know, for generations, we only knew physicians by what we saw in the exam room. Mm -hmm. uh, we've, infrequently saw, you know, beneath the white coat. And so with uh, the advance of social media and, and, and the capacity to publish and uh, out, out in public, uh, people can see that there are elements to us that are, that are really human. And I think that helps patients understand what we go through. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of what you're, a lot of what you've done is really to, to expose what we go through as physicians, which hasn't been recognized for many years. Right. Yep. Um, one, I guess one last thing about your, I guess the response by the academic community to your kind of delving into something that is, uh, kind of a path that's a little different from the traditional CV anesthesiologist, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's still evolving and I don't think that we have figured out what the relationship, um, or the synergy is between academia and social media, um, I don't think that we've figured that completely out, but I think that Absolutely. It, it, it's, I don't think those two things are in conflict as a lot of people do. And a lot of people actually tried to discourage me early in my, you know, it's funny. I, I actually hid this group for about a year that I had. And then it was, it just <laughs> became so big that people would come up to me at meetings and be like, are you Sasha Shulkut? And my, you know, my colleagues who didn't know I had this secret group were like, how do you know that person? How do you? And I was like, oh my right. gosh, I have to come out of the closet. Like <laughs> I, I have a Facebook group and it's actually really positive. And so, um, but man, I took a lot of pie in the face, to be honest with you, a lot. Um, I'm sure. So I, I don't think we figured out the, the relationship between academia and social media. I don't think we have it all figured out yet. But I don't think that those two things have to be in conflict with the, with one another. I think they can complement one another. And mm -hmm. um, man, I learn a lot from people on from great physicians on social media who I follow, who I've never met in my life. I learn a ton from them. So I see it as a very positive thing. There are obviously negative consequences if people are you know doing stupid things. Right. If you, if you do stupid things in your personal life, you know you shouldn't. Obviously. It, it, that's just a fact. Yeah, of it's, you know, it's interesting uh, with the rise of social media. One of the things that really hasn't happened, and we've we've done this summit at Baylor, is uh, preparing this next generation for how to live in a public world. This is all part of our our for many of us as part of our workflow now, uh, engaging in in Facebook groups with patients and right. uh, creating media just like this and. Uh, our, our trainees have very little preparation in this, uh, but certainly for 
the issue of burnout and resilience, I think this is a, a great place uh, or it's a great opportunity to get the word out because there still remains so much taboo around uh, around this issue. And uh, I think this is a great opportunity. Uh, so, Sasha, I really want to thank you today. This has been just a great conversation. And I have to fully admit that this is I came from a generation where no one talked about this. And so even just prepping for this conversation with you has been totally eye-opening. And I want to thank you for that. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you for being such a great role model on social media for uh, professionalism and for physicians and for getting, you know, challenging all of us to kind of be creative and innovative in how we uh, present ourselves and how we educate people. I really appreciate what you do. Absolutely. And, you know, your work is really the ultimate labor of advocacy for patients because our ability to care for patients is only as good as our ability to look after ourselves. Um, and so this is a problem we're just beginning to understand. This show is made possible in part by the Social Health Institute. Through research and partnerships with healthcare organizations around the country, the Social Health Institute explores new and innovative ways for hospitals, healthcare organizations, to develop and enhance their social media and digital marketing strategy. To learn more about the Social Health Institute, visit them online at socialhealthinstitute.com. That's socialhealthinstitute.com. Thank you for joining us in the exam room. If you like what you heard here, please rate the program, review us, or let folks know about us. And if you have any really cool ideas that you'd like discussed here, please feel free to let us know. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.